Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Four Seasons Resort in Ko'olina on the island of Oahu in Hawaii. And if you don't know where that is, when you get off the airplane, don't head to Waikiki. Turn the other way, go past Pearl Harbor, and then you get to a very special place that up until about 15 years ago, nobody knew about. And now people are starting to find out about it. It's a very, very cool location. We'll be talking about that throughout the show. My, my next guest knows a lot about this location, and she knows a lot about the island because she's part of something called Clay Door. And if you don't know what a Clay Door is, uh, you should. There are so many hotels out there that they'll put somebody at the concierge desk and they'll give them a hat. And that doesn't mean they know anything. That means they're a receptionist with a hat. Clay Door, they have to know what they're talking about because that is the traditional historic organization of truly professional concierges, and that's my next guest. Lisa Sapp, who's the Clay Door Concierge here at the Four Seasons. How are you? Aloha. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So now that I gave you that big buildup, now you got to deliver the goods here because, <laughs> you know, guests are usually intimidated by concierges. They still are. I remember when I was a kid, 12 years old, going to Europe for the first time with my parents. 
with my mother walking me into the Carlton Hotel in Cannes, and they had a separate concierge desk, as they did then, as they do now, before you even got to the, to the registration desk. And my mother pointed at the concierges and said to me, don't talk to them, because she was afraid. In those days, when you, when you, when you checked out of a hotel, you got your hotel bill and you got your concierge bill. And she was just terrified of cost, right? But today, most people think, oh, well, concierge will get me tickets to the theater, or, or, or they'll confirm an airline ticket. And you will, yes. right? But you do a lot more than that. Yes, we do. Like what? We do everything from transportation to activities to dining requests to travel. But it's more than just stuff on property. It's, it's island-wide. Correct. It's actually correct. international. We try to share what we know about uh, local culture with our guests here. I mean, for example, I used to spend a lot of time at the Mark Hotel in New York, and the concierge there, Giorgio, was amazing. And with Giorgio, I mean, you went to Giorgio for, if you wanted to know what the, what the New York Mets did that last night in Cleveland, he'd know. If you wanted to find out what train was leaving Tokyo, he'd know. Because he could always call his counterpart, who was a Claydor member there, and they, you guys are wired in. That's correct. In the old days, we used to call it a rather fat Rolodex. <laughs> we are pretty much a Rolodex of knowledge. That's correct. Right. Do you still use a Rolodex? No, actually, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Some people still do, you know. I'm old school about a lot of things, though. Yeah. So what would you say in this neighborhood? Because most people are not really familiar with everything around here, right? That's correct. What's your hidden gem of Koalina uh, in, within like five or six miles of this place? We have actually some places of Hawaiian significance here on the western side of the island, and we are tuned in with um, a lot of people who are willing to share that knowledge with our guests, from hiking to um, cultural experiences that we have arranged here on the property. We've we've got um, a team here at Co Four Seasons Koalina that have been um, researching and exploring this, and we're we have some very well-rounded experiences here that we provide. But also, if I want to go see Pearl Harbor, I can take the normal tour, or you guys can always help me to arrange a, 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 like a cooler tour. That's correct. We have private guides that are available that are very knowledgeable, and they want to give you more of a personal experience. Now, there are people who are coming here who are first-timers. There are people who come here who, who perceive themselves as world travelers, and they can be very demanding. So give me an idea of the craziest or even the stupidest request you've ever gotten. Let's see, just last week, I had a guest who, we had a um, car accident uh, right outside of the property, and the roads were closed, headed east towards the airport, and he absolutely had to catch this flight. So we Did you helicopter him out of here? We did. We had a helicopter come within 30 minutes to pick him up and take him to the airport. And he made his flight. And he made his flight, that's correct. He could have also gone by boat. <laughs> Would have taken a little longer, but yes. But he could have done it. Yes, all right, but that's, re that's in, in terms of responding to an immediate situation. But what about you know, an over-the-transom request you know, for something crazy? I had a uh, had guest who um, forgot her wedding ring in our safe. And she I won. use that excuse all the time. <laughs> and I'm not even married. No, no. no. It's ex it was extremely valuable. Yes. And she wanted me to uh, bring the ring, hop on a flight, and take it to her. She wanted hand-delivered. That's correct. And did you do it? No, I did not. Did somebody hand deliver it? We had a... You put somebody on the staff <laughs> on the plane. We had an armored car service take the ring to her. They put deliver the armored it. car on the plane? They, oh, no, no, they no. picked up the <laughs> ring and they got on the airplane and delivered it to her. And obviously no money was, was, was an issue there. They spared no expense. Spared no expense. 
obviously, as long as it's legal, you'll do it. Yes, we will do it. That was not a difficult answer, now, was it? <laughs> no, it was not. <laughs> Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. President and CEO of Hawaiian Airlines, Mark Dunkerley. Thanks for joining me. Oh, well, you're welcome, and great to see you, Peter. You know, I go back to the original days of, of Hawaiian Airlines, and I actually can go back that far, I'm sorry to tell you, even before you came in. I, hard to imagine that. Know, thanks so much. Yeah. Um, but you were an inter-island carrier, uh, you know, flying narrow-body jets, um, high frequencies, because you're doing a number of shuttles every day between the islands, and then all of a sudden I closed and blinked my eyes and... All of a sudden, there you were flying long-haul flights. Yeah. I, so I, the genesis of our business yeah. was, as you've mentioned, flying between the islands of the state of Hawaii, and we do that very, very frequently. Uh, it amounts today to about 25% of, of our business. So 75% of our business is our longer-haul flights, and that's split between flights between Hawaii and the U.S. mainland. And then the growing part of our network, which is flights between Hawaii uh, and other destinations in Asia, around the Pacific Rim. And I want to get to that in a second because Hawaii has suddenly become a hub when it never was before. Hawaii was always point to point. I mean, you flew to Hawaii and you flew back from Hawaii. And, and now you can, you can go continuing on. And we'll talk about that. But when you, when you talk about 75% of your flights being long haul, why the decision to do that? And, and then how do you compete? Well, it's not 75% of our flights long haul, 75% of, of our business, of yeah. our revenues are, yeah. are, are, are long haul. Um, the, the reason we've done that is because uh, we see there's a great market opportunity. Demand for the Hawaii vacation is strong. It's been enduring. Long may it stay that way. Uh, and Hawaiian Airlines has positioned itself, I think, rather well to provide the services that the inbound tourist wants to experience when they come to Hawaii. And there's been a formula that's worked very well for us. It's interesting because when you think of where you go, these days, you know, we've gone, at least in the mainland market, we've gone from eight airlines that were competing for 88% of the market share down to four that essentially own it. And then there are the, like, the little secret guys. And I'm not calling you little, but I am calling you a little bit of a secret because you're out there flying to a lot of different destinations that people don't necessarily even know you fly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we are little compared to the uh, big sort of uh, mega airlines that uh, today dominate the domestic uh, U.S. airline scene. But at the same time, uh, we were the only U.S. airline flying to Auckland. We remain the U.S. airline, only U.S. airline flying to Tahiti, the only U.S. airline flying to American Samoa. We have destinations in Japan that no other U.S. airline serves. We, we fly to Beijing and we fly to uh, uh, to Korea as well. You just so have to suffer and get to Honolulu first. You, well, it, it, it's, not a, it, it's never too suffering too badly when I know you're coming that. to Hawaii. Right, but it's all, it also changed your fleet of makeup because you go, you went from you know the little baby DC-9s to long-haul widebodies. Yeah, we've got one of the youngest fleets flying in the industry uh, at the moment. We've got our, our narrow-body operation is operated by Boeing 717 aircraft. We're a terrific airplane, works extremely well for us. And our long-haul network is um, flown mainly by the Airbus A330, uh, which in you our... used to have the DC-10s. Yeah, we used to have DC-10s and L-1011s at points in the, in the past. In exactly. those days, we used to uh, buy used airplanes. and, and From American Airlines, I believe. Oh, American Airlines yeah. is one of the places yeah. where we got them from. 
Um, but nowadays, we buy brand new airplanes, and that's what helps contribute to us having a very young fleet. And it might surprise a lot of people to know that if you take a look at all the major airlines, where did you come in in terms of on-time performance? 13 years in a row, we're the on-time leader, and it's a source of great pride internally here at the company. And, uh, you know, when we stop and think about what does uh, the visitor to Hawaii really expect out of the airline, um, uh, first and foremost, obviously, they want a, a safe experience, but shortly thereafter, they want to arrive on time with their bags. Uh, and to cap it off, our, our team do a terrific, terrific job looking after our guests as they come on, uh, to the airport and on board. Uh, and we found that this is a formula that's worked very well for us. And interestingly enough, if you take a look at the other on-time airlines, the other surprise would be like Alaska. You would think, how could they ever be on time? They're flying in weather situations like nobody else would ever put up with, and yet they're doing great. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think being on time is more than just about weather. I mean, we have good weather here. That actually isn't a big contributor per se to our on-time performance. Uh, our on-time performance is driven largely by the very high-frequency flights we have between the islands of the state of Hawaii. And an airplane will fly 16 times a day, typically, between the islands. That's a lot of cycles. That's a lot of cycles. And if each flight is just five minutes late, by the end of the day, it's an hour and a, almost an hour and a half late. So we're very focused on getting aircraft away on time, and that's uh, that level of focus and attention to detail is what's enabled us to get this uh, uh, this record. I mean, I remember in the early days of Southwest Airlines, they were very smart in cross-training their people. The guy who pushed the plane out could also write the ticket, could also load the bags. Are you doing the same thing? Well, we're always seeking to do a little bit more of that. Um, uh, it's an industry in which, with all of the training requirements and the regulations, actually makes it quite difficult to accomplish a lot of that, but that's always an ambition of ours, and we keep uh, striving for that. Now, you know, I go back to uh, what former Vice President Joe Biden once said about LaGuardia being a third-world airport. And when he said that, I always thought it was somewhat of an insult to other third-world airports because <laughs> there's some pretty great third-world airports out there these days. Then you have Honolulu Airport. Needs some work. Honolulu needs a lot of work, and this is a, a subject about which we've been quite vocal. Um, uh, I, I have to say that I think the current leadership of the airport's part of the solution, not part of the problem. But we are where we are, and where we are is that the airport is not nearly fit for purpose, uh, given the growth that we uh, that we've experienced. And and I mean, uh, got, let's talk about your growth. Uh -huh. you, you've gone from how many gates to how many gates? Well, we've gone from having. Uh, Half of the neighbor island business, which occupied about six or seven gates, to um, having now uh, upwards of 85% uh, of that business. So uh, we, we consume uh, an entire terminal now, the Terminal 2. Uh, but beyond that, we have a lot of wide-body operations, and we don't get our own dedicated uh, gates for in the main, which makes it uh, increasingly difficult to provide the customer service that we want to. Because you're always jockeying around. Yeah, we're always jockeying around. And with that kind of growth, where do you see it going in terms of airports keeping up with you? Because right now, even if they finish LaGuardia when they say they're going to finish it, it's never going to be what it needs to be. Well, we have an airport modernization plan. I think at issue here well, is— having the plan doesn't mean anything uh, more. Indeed. I think at, at issue is it's just been very, very slow in coming. Um, but when you think about Hawaii in particular, being a state that derives so much money from travel and tourism, you'd think this would be, you know, topic A. You know, let's, let's get this at number one on the agenda. 
I don't think you'll find anybody in the community who's going to sit there and tell you that we have great airport infrastructure. I think that is well understood and well known. Uh, right now, going through the legislature is a bill that would um, take the airport and create uh, effectively an authority for it, which would allow it to be much more nimble and much more quick. At the moment, we're terribly constrained by some of the state's procurement rules and regulations and some of the approaches that they have that uh, delays construction, delays planning, delays um, uh, all the things that I think everybody understands we need to do, and we're big supporters of that bill. I have a philosophy, let's see if you agree with it, that the people who design airports have never flown. I actually think that they shouldn't be paid for their work until they actually have to go out and take a flight somewhere. Because, for example, you go to certain airports in America, and I know they mean well, and you see rocking chairs. And you go, oh, isn't that cute? To me, that means you're going to be here a while. And, you know, I don't know about you, Mark, but I don't go to an airport to have fine dining experiences. I don't go to the airport to entertain my family and friends. I don't go to the airport to see a play or a one-hour drama, although we see a lot of one-hour dramas at the airport. I go to the airport to go through the airport and to get in and get out as fast as I can. And yet the airport model these days is how do we generate revenue? How do we pay for it? You know, even if you redo the, the airport here. And if you and please don't put rocking chairs in there. It sends the wrong message. Well, I, I, I don't think we would be putting rocking chairs in any terminal of ours. I, and I agree with you. I think what, uh, what the uh, traveler is looking for is, is to be able to move seamlessly and as quickly as possible through the airports. I think where uh, in a generation past that we've, we've really struggled is um, I think there's been a lack of willingness to, to think flexibly. In the last 50 years, I mean, you build a new terminal, you're, you're anticipating that terminal is going to be used for a couple of generations. Not it, just the next three years. Correct, not yeah. just in the next three years. And if you think of all the changes that have, that have happened, looking backwards 40, 50 years, uh, and imagine how, wh- how is it that we could today build a facility and pretend that the world as we know it today will be the same in 40 or 50 years' time. I mean, that's obviously a ludicrous proposition. So I think the best airports in the world, and you mentioned some, uh, particularly in places like China and Asia in general, we see some terrific airports. They're built to be flexible so that the interior walls can be moved and changed as the needs change from security to airline alliances to lounges. Uh, flexibility is the key when you're talking about airports. And they're also building ahead of the anticipated growth. They're going to be good for the next 20 years just based on how many gates they're giving people. They're, they're depending on that. Yeah, it's actually part of a bigger national uh, discussion around infrastructure. I think those of us that travel, and we spend a lot of time in Asia because we have such an important part of our business there. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I've been coming to Hawaii since in my early 20s, and certain things don't seem to have changed much. There's still the chocolate-covered macadamia nuts. There's still all the stories, stuff you can buy at the ABC store. There's still the bus tours and the um, and the Japanese arranged wedding tourists. However, there is a movement afoot uh, for those people who are who are veteran tourists to Hawaii, otherwise known as travelers, to seek out and then immerse themselves in a much more authentic, genuine experience. And that's part of what the the Four Seasons is trying to do. And joining me now is part of that movement, uh, Aloma Wang, who actually is a weaver and a real Hawaiian weaver. Yes. Explain that. Explain the kind of weaving we're doing because we're not people aren't just always showing up buying straw hats or or you know or the the aloha uh, shirts or 
the puka shells that you can find in abundance on Kalakaua Avenue. This is something where the guests here can actually get involved. Yes, um, we are trying to do something different so that uh, the, our guest will take something culturally significant back with them. Not only will they have something tangible to take back, but also the culture behind it. And I weave lauhala, and that... And that's is, a type of weaving that's been on this island for a long time. Thousands of years. and um, So probably brought over by other Pacific Islanders when they came. Yes, and uh, they do have an in, the indigenous plant, the, the lauhala plant that grew here, that um, has thorns in it. And much later, the Tahitian lau was introduced to the islands. And that one does not have any uh, thorns in them. And speaking of the Pacific Islanders who sailed here, is that the same kind of weaving that was done for the sails and the canoes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there is uh, one of the reasons that this there's a resurgence with the, the lauhala weaving is... Uh, because of the hokulea and uh, many of the kupuna, the elders, bringing it back uh, um, into uh, the culture. But isn't that always a- been the challenge of if you can't hand it down, you lose it? Absolutely. Even the traditional Hawaiian language, if you go to the island of Nihihau, they still speak Hawaiian there. That is very true. One of the reasons is um, Hawaiians pass down their knowledge orally. There is not a written history behind it. Who taught you? Mm, uh, one of uh, my, my kumu is Gwen Kamisugi, and she had learned from a master weaver. And even for her, it was didn't come through her family. She had to learn it from outside. Whereas before, each every family, every Hawaiian family, had a weaver in their family out of well, they necessity. Well, they had to. They had Absolutely. Because it, was it wasn't just hats. It was bedding. Absolutely. And wall coverings. That's right. Uh, pillows. That's right. Everything. Uh, baskets when it was coffee season. Well, even roofs. Absolutely. Thatting, yeah. 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 And the hokule, I mean, the, the canoes, they sailed. The The reason they were able to sail was uh, because um, the la- they wove uh, sails with the lauhala. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I failed arts and crafts in high school, okay? I'm not that good. Okay. Can you even teach me? Yes. Yes, I can. (laughs) And how many months will it take? Um, You know, you could start a bracelet and just to... to, taste of it and that I can, I can probably teach you in about 45 minutes but when guests come to the hotel here you're, you're allowing them to immerse themselves in that practice absolutely they sit with me and while the, while I'm teaching I te- I let them know that this is a really authentic lauhala and uh, the weaving methods uh, we follow are from the kupuna from the elders and the materials are from where um, they come from all over the place. Colina is one place that uh, there are some trees that are with beautiful leaves that we use. And the Hawaiians... Um, you, unlike, have to, you have to dry them. You yeah, to. well, uh, the Hawaiians are the only Pacific Islanders that... Uh, pick the leaves when they are dry, whereas the other islands, uh, they cut the green leaves. And then they dry them. And then they dry them. And there's a significant difference in um, the feel of the leaf. Now, you're not Hawaiian. I'm not. I'm not. Only in my heart. But you've been here for, what, 25 years? 32. Excuse me, but who's counting? (laughs) That's right. And how long have you been weaving? Uh, I've been weaving just for over six and a half years. However... I weave about at least 12 hours a day, routinely. 12 hours a day? Yes. You know, there are child labor laws about this, you know. (laughs) Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio 
with no particular place to go. My next guest is, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, an extended member of my family by this time. <laughs> an amazing woman, an amazing chef, an amazing innovator. Can I say amazing? Any- if I say amazing anymore, it'll sound like I'm Donald Keep Trump going. holding a press conference. Keep going. Um, no, I can't say the word amazing <laughs> anymore. But uh, along with her husband, Joe, who is an- uh, another amazing guy, okay, I- I'm done now runs a place that I live at every time I'm in Maui. So she's actually come over to, to Oahu to see me today. Uh, the name of her restaurant, of, of which there are a number, but the one that is the classic is the Haile'i Miley General Store. And every time I tell my friends to go there, they go, well, how do I get there? And I say, well, okay, you rent a car and you drive like you're going to Hana. And then if you miss the turn, you'll never get there. You got to make this one turn by the sugarcane fields and then go through the old World War II barracks and those Quonset huts, and then you get to your place. But here's the great news. What, they have a traffic light now? Yes, and a left <laughs> turn signal So no, with a big sign that says Haliti Miley Road, so nobody really? ever calls lost anymore. Wow, because if they would call getting lost, they couldn't get a signal anyway. It was really hard to find. It was this little road yeah. with sugarcane, which, of course, now it's going to be a little road with out sugar cane. I know, but the bottom line is you still have to know where to go to get there. Yeah, true. How long have you been doing that restaurant now? Starting in October, we start our 30th year. Okay, that's it. I'm checking into a home. That's I know, it. me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, 30 years later where we opened this little general store that turned into a restaurant that um, was a destination that nobody knew where it was. Uh, I'm feeling pretty proud of it now. And you're one of the, the the basic innovators, the pioneers of what we call Hawaiian regional cuisine. Hawaii regional cuisine, yes. yes. And uh, how many cookbooks now? Uh, two of my own. Yeah. Third coming up. There soon. you go. But has that changed, the, the concept of HRC? You know, I don't think the concept has changed. I think the, um, the people who are now being more a lot more innovative with it are these up-and-coming chefs that we have. Right. Now that, um, you know, Sheldon Simeon, he was on Top Chef, you know, all of a sudden he's cooking Filipino and Hawaii regional cuisine food where millions of people are seeing what it is. Uh, the other good thing is that we just have so many farmers and ranchers and fishermen now where whatever we want is considered local because they'll grow whatever we want. So you, the, the thing that's really changed is you can actually locally source things now. Absolutely. And my secret garden um, that I have up country uh, is no longer that secret where um, Oprah has a farm up country, Maui, and we now... Are you name dropping? I am name dropping. Um, and, but it's great. She's started this organic farm with this amazing farmer that... We say we want a specific type of I can of just radish. see it in the magazine now. Oprah's like, my favorite farm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Turns out to be hers. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Right. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. And so every we have morning. To, we have to oh, stop. Oh, sorry. You, I have to stop saying amazing. Can't say amazing. Okay. Well, you know what? When you live in Hawaii, everything is that word. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting because you have people come in. Oh, I'm in Hawaii. Oh, and then by the time they leave, when I drove down the hill this morning, and there was not a cloud in the sky, and the sun was coming up, and Haleakala was crystal clear. This is in Maui. In Maui, and the West Maui Mountains were crystal clear where you could see the top of Molokai, one of the mountains in Molokai, which you can never see usually because there's always clouds. We both just looked at each other, my husband and I, and went, oh, my God, this is, we, this is where we live. 
So what you want is people who come over here, whether it's Oahu, Hawaii, uh, Maui, that when they leave, they go, okay, how can we get back here? But then we don't really want them to come back, um, <laughs> come back and live here because we don't want it to get too big. But it is this incredible place to live that now we're becoming very self-sustainable in our produce. And, and you know, our, our goal is to, in the next 20 years, be able to sustain ourselves if there's you know, a, a strike with the cargo containers or a hurricane or anything that we, exactly. we can actually feed everybody. All right, coming up on 30 years, is there one item that's maintained itself throughout 30 years on the menu? There's a few that I can't take off. Well, there's the little crab pizza that we make that everybody has to have. Um, our would, mac- would that be amazing? It kind of okay, is. Okay, fine, go ahead. It yeah, is. Yeah. People, I've had, a, I've had huge chefs go, okay, what's the recipe for this? And, of course, I won't tell it. Um, at one of these days I will. In fact, when one, I die, that's one. That's one. Okay, uh, mac nut crusted fish, biggest seller with a mango passion fruit sauce and purple sweet potatoes. That can't go off. Sashimi Napoleon is probably overall my biggest seller, where it's layers of ahi tartare, uh, ahi slices, smoked salmon, wasabi vinaigrette. Um, people wish that they could actually. Have us send it to them, which we can't. They have to come and have it. You forgot one item. The sugar snap peas with the ginger and garlic. That you make for me. Yes, that you love. <laughs> that the minute he walks in the door, the pan goes on the stove. <laughs> I'm not spoiled or anything. You are totally spoiled. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle. David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to pay with plastic. If you have a Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. He's, he's a professional surfer. He's a stuntman. He's a director. But he's also, and when you, when you use this term, you use it respectfully, he's a waterman. And uh, his name is uh, Brian K. Luna. Man, I'm telling you. It's, excuse me. It's Brian K. Luna. I'm an idiot. Yeah, you got it, right? I, I got it I right. I thought my mom was, was coming over pretty soon. <laughs> and... I mean, I know you, of course, in the interest of full disclosure, through my cousin Pua, who's also a crazy surfer, and my uncle, who was an amazing surfer and legendary. But you've got the coast here. I mean, you and your family, I mean, you own Makaha, I'm telling you. Yeah, well, our whole family is really connected by the ocean. And, you know, we're really not divided by land, but we're connected by water. And it doesn't matter where we go in the world, we all kind of share the same values. And... You know, I remember when I first came over here, and even before, because my mother would show me pictures of the original surfing on the old wooden boards, and then and then I got two of them. That's how I learned. You know, these 140-pound mahogany, hollow cord out boards. They even had a drain plug because they took on water. They didn't have a, a, a skeg. You you just went where the where the water took you. You've come a long way since then. Oh yeah, you know, sur- surfing has evolved. You know, from the interpretation of being a beach bum to being a, a professional athlete and it's a big industry a professional beach bum a professional beach bum yeah, okay i'm just yeah. double checking bro <laughs> <laughs> but seriously I mean, it, it's 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 a it's a recognized sport 
Um, I mean, the, what you're able to do on boards these days could never have been done 10 years ago. No, and, and that's the whole thing about our culture here in Hawaii. We're not really defined by what equipment we use and utilize. It's really the love of the ocean and having fun. But who are you having fun with? You know, so that's the whole thing about our ocean culture that we have and stuff. And it's pretty much spread around the world. But it's also it's more just a culture. It's almost a ritual because, you know, because of your proximity to the water, it's not unusual for people to, to make surfing a part of their daily regime. Yeah. You know, like I said, my dad being one of the pioneer surfers, Buffalo, Kealana, and we growing up on the beach and, you know, we were never hungry. My father would feed not just us, but the whole beach. He would go and dive and, you know, just cook out and feed everyone around us. You ate from the sea. We ate from the sea. And we also had a farm right behind uh, Macaw Beach also, too. So my mom would go back and we would trade the fish for some of the, the produce and stuff and make a meal. Now, speaking of Makaha Beach, we were on there the other day with you, mm-hmm. and you wheeled out something I'd never seen before. What was that, Brian? The subsquatch. <laughs> well, wait, first, sub means stand-up paddleboard. Exactly. Right? But you were really one of the, I mean, you don't, I know you don't like to admit this, but you were really one of the pioneers in stand-up paddleboarding because you figured out there was another way to go. Yeah, we're just one of the guys having fun, and then it just grew. We, we utilized that stand-up paddling more for cross-training because we love surfing giant waves. I have to tell you something. I get more exercise from stand-up paddleboarding than anything else I do. Be- and, and you do a half an hour of that, you know it. Yeah, a half an hour of pad- standing, stand-up paddling yeah. is equivalent to me surfing all day. Really? Yeah, I mean, it really tightens your core muscles and, you know, a lot, a lot of people and stuff. Sometimes, you know, we look at people and you see long borders, short borders, body borders, and they put themselves in a category. They don't open themselves up to all the different type of equipment. And that's the reason why we live on the west side where a lot of the people there they just have fun, whether it's a McDonald's tray in the water or a bodyboard or an ancient Alaya Hawaiian surfboard. It doesn't How many really McDonald's matter. trays are in the water? Oh, my God. A whole bunch. <laughs> the, the good thing, it's not in the water. They, they probably put it back in their garage. Oh, my God. But what you brought out the other thing, you called it the subsquatch because this thing is massive. Yeah. I mean, a normal, a normal, what, a normal stand-up paddleboard is what, 9 feet, 10 feet? Um, you can go from, 11. Yeah, you can go 11, 12. Right, and, but they don't get this wide. This is wide. Yeah, well, this one is 8 feet wide by 16 foot eight long. 8 feet wide, 16 feet long, and how many people can it take? You, we're competing with that um, subsquatch nowadays. So anywhere from 5 to 7 people competing. But I've had On one board? On one board. But I've had 20 <laughs> kids on top of that board catching a wave. Well, you had seven of us the other day. Oh, yeah. And we go out there, we start paddling. You've got you to paddle out to the break. And then we turn around, and this thing takes off. Oh, yeah. It's a Hawaiian bobsled team. (laughs) But wait, ladies and gentlemen, this 16-foot board is not his biggest board. No, not even close. You have another one. What's it called? Subzilla. So (laughs) Subzilla is a 40-foot stand-up board. And, And the great thing, it's an inflatable. Unbelievable. So you can roll it up, put it in a duffel bag, and then travel around with it. And how many people do you put on that thing? Oh, my God. What I had on that thing. Uh, and by the way, from now on, we're going to call it that thing. That thing, yeah. 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 40. 40 people on top. Surfing one wave. Uh, on the surfing side, 40 just paddling. On the surfing, what we had, we had 21 surfing. <laughs> one wave. Yeah, one wave. Guys, is there a video of this? Uh, yeah. Actually, we did the whole Hawaii Five-0 um, stunt team as our kind of Christmas card. So you can look it up, Hawaii Five-0, and 
Season. By the way, Brian works on that show, by the way. Yeah, yeah. In the interest of full disclosure, on CBS, I might add. On CBS, yeah. 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 But, I mean, how did you develop this thing? It was more, I work in the film industry full-time. So I made an inflatable platform where we can put camera and the director and all the production on top of the uh, floating platform. And then um, it wasn't moving as fast as I wanted to in, in the moving water. Fast I moving hate water. when that happens, yeah. Yeah, so I figured, you know, why not just make a giant surfboard? And then from there, we just started playing more and more on it. And, you know, now it's uh, one of the biggest craze right now. It's, it's, I have to tell you guys, we're going to try to put some video on my website, petergreenberg.com, of actually us doing it. And by the way, we made it in first time, didn't we? Yeah, first wave. First wave. Yeah. And then, of course, when you hit the beach, you really oh, hit, hit the, the beach. beach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had sand in parts of my body I did not even know existed. Full disclosure. Full disclosure, okay. yes. But what a ride. Yeah. That was so much fun. And anybody can do it now. Yeah, we, anybody can. I mean, that's the whole thing is, you know, I, I have friends that come from other parts of the world, and they look and they go, wow, doesn't everybody get mad because there's a whole bunch of these giant boards out there? And I told him, I said, when you come to Macaw, close your eyes and tell me what you hear. He did close his eyes, and all you hear is laughter from near and far. And it's really all about having fun in the ocean. And we had a lot of fun. Yeah, we had a whole bunch of fun. With a member of Hawaiian Surfing Royalty, Ryan Kiyonaka. Hello, uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. For those of you who are regular listeners to the show, you know I'm a train fanatic. Love trains. We've done this show many times from trains all over the world. And, uh, and I'm always on the case of Amtrak because they have some great trains. They just don't know how to promote them. They don't know how to offer them to the American public. Um, I tell the story. I was in Richmond, Virginia, and I needed to get to New York. The air service was terrible. I looked at the Amtrak schedule. They had the Northeast Regional, which came in at 5 in the morning, and that was the one they were talking about. And it got to Penn Station at 1 in the afternoon. And then I looked at the schedule again and saw that at 4.30 in the morning, the Silver Meteor showed up. Now, that's a, pl- that's a train that starts in Miami every day and goes all the way to Penn Station. It's got dining cars and bedrooms and, and, I mean, and butlers and not much more money than the, than the Northeast Regional. And it actually gets to Penn Station an hour earlier. And you know which train I took. Uh, Amtrak does an absolutely miserable job of letting people know not only what, what trains they can take, but also the deals they can do. One of them, believe it or not, is, an, is a rail pass they've got that they don't even advertise very well. You can get a 15-day unlimited travel deal with eight segments. Unlimited meaning you got eight. For 459 bucks. Are you kidding? You can't go from New York to Boston for 459 Um A 30-day segment with 12 segments is 689 and my favorite, the 45-day uh, uh, pass for 18 segments for $8.99. And kids are half of that. If they're under the age of 12, it's a great deal. But now we're in Hawaii, and you're saying, why are you talking about trains in Hawaii? Well, because my next guest is the operations manager at the Hawaiian Railroad Society. That's right. They actually have a train here. And his name is Steve N. How are you, Steve? Good morning. I'm pretty good. How are you? So there is a train that still operates. Yes, there is. We're the only operating railroad. Uh, only operating historical railroad in the state. I mean, you got a couple of freight trains, right? We have some freight cars. Yes, but we don't use. We don't move freight. We move uh, passengers. I'm saying, but but there are some there are some freight cars on the island, or no? Oh yes, we That's have a saying. whole probably thirty or forty of them. 
Exactly. But tell me about your train. Because right here where we are on the, on the resort, I go 100 feet from the, from, the, uh, from the entrance to the driveway. I'm crossing train tracks. Yes, you are. Tell me about that train. The Hawaiian Railway Society operates on about six and a half miles of original Oahu Railway and Land Company railroad tracks. And that was what, an agricultural train? or was No, it, that it was, was a, a passenger? common. It was a common carrier. They carried freight, passengers, you name it, they carried it. It was no different than anything on the mainland. It just happened to be here. And where did they go from and to? It went from Honolulu around Pearl Harbor, down these original tracks. These are the original tracks, up the Waianae Coast, around Kaina Point, and all the way across the North Shore to Kuhuku. There was a second line that went from Waipahu up the middle of the island to Wahiwa. So now it's a fraction of that size now, but you're still using it. Yes. And where are you going now? We run from our train station in Eva, in Old Eva Villages. Which is where? It's about six and a half miles east of here. It's, right. Eva's the west side of Pearl Harbor and, and closer to the beach. And you go to? We come out here through Koalina and we go over to Kahi Point. And then we back up and go back through. So it's a great day trip. It's an hour and a half ride. Yeah. Uh, our three o'clock rides are a little different. We stop here at Koalina for two scoops ice cream. Well, so, guess which one I'm going to be on. Yeah. So, and the, the three o'clock rides are extremely popular. For, uh, I can't imagine why. I can't either. <laughs> um, it's, 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 it, it's just a blast. Everybody seems to have a very nice time. We have an onboard narrator, a real live person that's going to tell you history, uh, things you're seeing along the way, and, and different things about the railroad. What kind of engine using? We're using a 1944 Whitcomb diesel electric. So it's diesel, not steam? No, I don't have an operating steam locomotive. We last had an operating steam locomotive in 19, about 84. Where is that today? It's in the, sh uh, it's all cosmetically restored and it's inside the building. So you can still see it. Oh, absolutely. It's the reason we were formed. It was a locomotive from the North Shore and uh, it was going to get scrapped. And a group of people got together, created the Hawaiian Railway Society and to save, save that engine and, and, then, and then ultimately made it operate. And now you're going to diesel. Well, now we have the diesels, yes. Now, is there a cost to this train? There is. Sure. It's a $12 for adults and $8 for kids and seniors. But the 3 o'clock one includes the ice cream. No, I'm not paying for your ice cream. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, I'm not paying for your ice cream. <laughs> is that your branding motto? We're not paying for your ice cream? Uh, that does get brought up in the beginning of the uh, train ride. <laughs> but it's still worth it. Oh, yeah. The, the train is almost always full on Saturday at 3 and Sunday at 3. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? My next guest has special significance, not just to this hotel, but to this entire region. Uh, she's a sixth generation member of a family that served as a kahu, uh, a, a person of spiritual qualities, a healer and a shepherd, um, to, when you go back that far, to King Kamehameha. And... Um, and nothing goes on in this region without her knowing about it, without her uh, discussing it, and of course, at the end of the day, blessing it. Uh, I'm not going to give you her full name. She's going to give you her full name, but everybody knows her as Auntie Nettie. Correct. Your full name, though? Lynette Pualani Tiffany. Everything was good until the Tiffany part. I didn't <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to ask where that came from. But, but when we talk about a kahu... Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this region where we are right now, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, this didn't look like this at all. Absolutely not. In fact, people did not come here. Correct. But you were here. Yes. Why? Well, my mother and this wonderful woman that lived next door at Lani Kuhunua, where I am now, 
she came out here when it wasn't very fashionable to live out this side. And her, she just saw the future of this area. And she and my mother became very close. But this is just agricultural out here at that point, right? Yes, sugarcane. But she came And more sugarcane. And more <laughs> sugarcane, from the mountain to the ocean. But my mother and she became very close. And my mother was a feather master, the maker of feather capes, feather lays, feather kahilis. What, what's, what's a kahili? It's like a, they use them in wall royal courts. It's like a pole with a, almost a barrel shape on the top. Uh-huh. And they're feathers that before, in the ancient times, they gathered it from the birds. Got it. But they became very close. And my mother, with her background, um, stayed out here to take care, help, to take care of the area. Plus, she was from down this side. So it was just an automatic thing that my mother would be here with this wonderful woman called Kamakila Campbell. Now, you grew up speaking two languages, right? Pretty much so. Actually, three. My dad was Portuguese Hawaiian. A fisherman. He, you know, no, he worked for Hawaiian Electric. Really? No, no, one, of the no. few, one of the few Portuguese who wasn't fishing at the time. <laughs> no, no, no fisherman, no. no. You, you know, every society has their, if you'll excuse the expression, their Polish joke, yep. right? There was always the Polish jokes in Europe, Australia. There were New Zealand jokes. In Hawaii, it was Portuguese. Portuguese and jokes. The, they say Portuguese. Yeah, Port- <laughs> exactly. Portuguese jokes, yes. So you spoke Portuguese. Yes. You spoke Hawaiian. Hawaiian. And English. And English. Yes. Or Hawaiian slash English. And it wasn't fashionable when I was growing up for people to be speaking Hawaiian. Way back, it almost was against the law to speak Hawaiian in ancient times. They did. And then... People came to Hawaii, and next thing you know, Hawaiian wasn't spoken. And it was really sad because it was losing this language. But my grandmother, who was way ahead of her time, spoke the Hawaiian language. And my mother and family, they did the um, Hawaiian things, you know, they, the rituals and the blessings and a healing. And that's where you learned it? Yes, you know, it, it's it's such a challenge, not just here, but in so many societies around the world, to preserve that kind of culture. Absolutely. Uh, and to hand it down, because one of the things I learned from my very first days coming here, there's not a lot in writing. Nothing. It's all really. what you like call what you guys call talk story. Yes. You talk story, mm-hmm. and you still do. Well, the Hawaiians did have a written language, so that was created by the white person that came here because they needed to understand and communicate but we grew up uh we didn't you just learn hawaiian from speaking to each other but there was no schools or books or anything yeah right it was person to person yep story to story yep which continues to this day and but they're written they have done very well lately lately yeah they now we have books and history written down so our children that don't speak hawaiian Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Uh, 
my next guest, I will call him a citizen of the world. He happens to be the executive chef here, but he and I have been circling around each other for like the last 20 years in places like Amman, Jordan, and Syria, and uh, and then, of course, the U.S. He's the executive chef here at the Four Seasons Coalina. His name, Martin Cadalbert. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Nice Thank to, you. Nice to see you again. Good to see you. You know, when you're in a place like, I, I remember when you opened the Four Seasons in Syria, and you're not there anymore, I know, but because um, I was in Amman at the time. That was considered a pretty bold move, and in a location that people really wanted to go to because there were so many great things to see in Damascus. Um, and in those days, Aleppo. Um, God help us all now. But one of the things that you're able to do because you've had this breadth of experience is to incorporate so many different sources of food, so many different aspects of cooking, uh, that it's not just traditional Hawaiian cuisine. Now that, now that you're here in, in Hawaii, you know, I remember when I first came to Hawaii, everything, everything was mahi-mahi. What's for dinner tonight? Mahi mahi, right? Yeah. And everything was like crusted macadamia nuts. Enough already. I got it, right? Or pineapple. But now, what you guys are doing here at the hotel is you ever here's farm to table. But we actually go to a farm. We, you actually took me to a farm and we picked out what we wanted to cook and we came back and did it. I mean, that's that's cool. That's right. That's how it should be. So, how are you able to do that with your guests here? And and then, what exactly are you looking for at this farm? Um, the farm was one of the first things I discovered here when I came to Oahu. And I was really surprised to see what I found there in vegetables and the abundance of vegetables and quality of vegetables. And right there, before the hotel even was opened, I decided this is what we need to use here at the Four Seasons. And the guests appreciate exa exactly that. They come from California. They come from the mainland. So they come with the mindset, okay, I'm going to have macadamia nut crusted mahi-mahi. <laughs> but they come here and they find And by the way, there's nothing wrong with macadamia nut crusted. Not. But enough with it already. I know. Come on. So it, it's By the way, just, is it on the menu? No, it's not. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really like showing people what's here and, and give them a new, fresh approach to food. And you can locally source everything now. We can, on a fruit and vegetable side, locally, almost everything locally. Yes, that's right. So give me an example of all the stuff you're sourcing locally. Ah, oh, fennel, um, kale, tomatoes, mushrooms, beans, uh, beetroots, uh, all kinds of herbs. It's it's really, there's no stopping. And the farm that we went to, Kahumana Farms on the west side of Oahu, is really, they're listening to the chefs too. I'm not the only chef that works with them. You're telling them what you need. I tell them, hey, can you grow this? And they will tell me straight up, yes or no. I asked them, hey, can you do potatoes? And they said, no, I can't. But... The fennel was one of the things I asked for as well, and now they are having a huge row of fennel on their farm. And it's just, it's a give and take between farmers and chefs, and the guest profits from it. Now, there are certain myths about what you grow in Hawaii. Most people think the, the pineapple that you get comes from here. Most of it comes from the Philippines now. Um, seasonally, it comes from here. Actually, on Oahu, there is still yeah. a farm. One. But there's <laughs> one. one farm left. One, yeah. Maui closed down the business already. But, yeah, Philippines is mango season as well. Mango season is from May till August. It comes from, uh, from the farms around us, and it's superior quality. Right now, the mangoes come from the Philippines or from Mexico. And, of course, when I first came to Hawaii, there were just fields and fields of sugar cane. You had the sugar mills. They just closed down the, sh the, the last remaining sugar uh, mill in, in Maui. In Maui, yeah, that's yeah. right. So now all that's coming from somewhere else. All that's coming from, from somewhere else, and yeah, maybe less sugar in our diet is not a bad thing. Now, you're German? I am. So what German influences are on the menu here? I mean, what? Come on, the truth. The truth? Schnitzel? Um, schnitzel, there a, schnitzel? There's an Italian version of a schnitzel on our <laughs> Italian restaurant menu, but um, other than that, um, I do like to incorporate sausages. 
Yes, are you doing sure. are you doing them here? Some of them we do here, yeah. Really? Very good. Pretzels? Pretzels we have done that. It's not a regular menu item, but actually there's there's requests for it and, and a good burger with a pretzel bun is is a good thing. Too. There we go. Now we got it. What's your biggest challenge? Because in the old days, when I say the old days, five, ten years ago, you know, if the boat didn't come over with all the supplies, you didn't get it. I mean, but now you can basically source just about anything you want, can't you? You can source pretty much everything you want, and, and the suppliers on the island technically don't really keep stock. So they have a schedule of ships and airplanes coming in. If there is a hurricane warning, we still, uh, we still experience some shortages. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. Okay. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.